0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett.
1: And I'm Sabrina. So next week we'll go back to talking about dinosaur news, but this week we'll be talking about a special dinosaur in New Jersey called Hattie. And we also have an interview with the winner of our podcast giveaway from back in March, Amory, who has gone on two digs, one in Wyoming and one in Alaska. And we also have the dinosaur of the day, Carcharodontosaurus. If you're ever in southern New Jersey or even near Philadelphia, you should try to stop by Haddonfield, New Jersey. That's where you can see Hadrosaurus folki, which is the world's first nearly complete dinosaur skeleton. According to one source, quote, In the summer of 1858, Victorian gentleman and fossil hobbyist William Parker Folk was vacationing in Haddonfield, New Jersey, when he heard that 20 years previous, workers had found gigantic bones in a local marl pit. He spent the late summer and fall directing a crew of hired diggers shin-deep in gray slime. Eventually, he found the bones of an animal larger than an elephant, with structural features of both a lizard and a bird. This site became quote-unquote ground zero for dinosaur paleontology, and it's marked by a commemorative stone in a small park. It's actually located at the end of a suburban street, so it's kind of hard to imagine, but also cool to think that dinosaurs once roamed there. When Garrett and I went to visit, we met a man and his two-year-old son who lived on the block. And he told us that kids always leave dinosaur toys on this picnic table that's next to the stone, and sometimes even lets his son borrow them to play with. If you go to downtown Haddonfield, you can see an eight-foot statue of Hattie. And Haddonfield itself is very much like a beach town, so it's pretty fun to visit anyway. It's relaxing, has a lot of shops, not too crowded. If you want to see the bones of Hattie, you can go to Philadelphia, to the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University. They have the Hadrosaurus skeleton on display, and it was the first dinosaur skeleton in the world to be mounted for public display back in 1868. And apparently it's also the fossil that began the Bone Wars between Cope and Marsh also at the academy of natural sciences a number of other fossils to take a look at and some animatronic dinosaurs the museum's not that big but definitely fun to visit and i think worth seeing if you are in philadelphia and you have a little bit of time one of the exhibits compares how dinosaurs and crocodiles walk and they also have an area set up where you can watch them clean up and work with some bones so i Definitely recommend checking out that museum if you have a chance. And Haddonfield, New Jersey, too. And now for our interview, our guest today is Amari Michelle, and he was the winner of our I Know Dino podcast giveaway back in March. Amari recently completed his undergraduate degree. He was a biology major, and he had the opportunity to go on two different dinosaur digs, one in Wyoming and one in Alaska. How were you able to go on those two digs? So the first one was actually a class trip. So if you were taking the class,
2: you were going on this dig. It was for Professor Paul Serino's course, and he just, he kind of had it as just like to give everyone, I guess, a background in paleontology. And the second one, he just asked me if I would want to go on another dig. So I was like, definitely, I will go on any other
1: dig, yeah. So for people not familiar with the class or the professor, where did you attend school? I
2: attended my undergrad at the University of Chicago. And I took uh, Paul Serino's course the spring quarter of my fourth year.
1: Now that you've taken this course and you've been on a couple of digs, has that influenced what you want to do now that you've graduated? Oh, yeah,
2: like 100%. I wish I had taken this course and I started volunteering sooner because it's just, like, such a cool lab. Even in-lab volunteering is so fun because you just get to, I don't know, cleaning old bones is really exciting. But it definitely changed what I want to do. I actually had a, a job working in the Chicago schools before I got asked to go on the second dig. It kind of just changed everything I was doing.
1: Can you talk a little bit about each of the digs that you went on? So the first dig was in Wyoming, and we were working in the Morrison Formation,
2: right next to our stoves, and we would just, after the sun rose, we'd have breakfast, and then you're just working under the sun. The site was like, our professor had been there before. He knew generally where things were. So we were just working at a site that had previously been worked at. And in Alaska it was a lot different. We were working with shale and it was like a lot wetter site. So we were on on the north slope working off a river and the shale was like nowhere near as hard as the sandstone. So we were we'd kind of just like hammer away at the shale and we would remove giant chunks at a time. And sometimes you could just like split up this shale and you'd just find bones in it. And they were
1: perfectly preserved. There was a lot smaller bones at that site. What kind of bones did you find?
2: Um, so in Wyoming, I found uh, a Camarasaurus rib and two Stegosaurus bones. We found a scapula and an ilium. And in Alaska, it was just lots of Hadrosaur bones, tons of juvenile bones. We found some generating parts, lots of femurs, some tips, and I found a few trodon teeth, which was pretty exciting, because you have, like, all these hadrosaurs, and then you have, like, a few just trodon, like, some carnivorous teeth in the mix. So it's, I don't know what the story is there, but it was really exciting to find
1: those. So then what do you do once you've found the bones? How do you, I guess, take care of them or get them out of the ground or the rock? So you find the bones, and then you start
2: making what are called jackets. So people use different methods, but as you clean the bone out of the ground, you'll put consolidant on it, which is it's like a glue that will keep the bones together so that when you're hammering at the ground next to it, it's a little stronger, because a lot of these bones are pretty fragile. And then once you have enough consolidant on the bone, you'll put either some people use aluminum foil and other people use just toilet paper, and they'll put that over the bone before they put these like burlap and plaster sheets over the bones. So you, you put tons of burlap and plaster just over the aluminum which is over the bone and you you just keep surrounding the bone and you basically keep reinforcing it. And then you wanna you can't just remove it right away because it's precious. These things are millions of years old. So you, you just keep digging around the bone. If you're some fields you'll get a lot of bones overlapping with each other so that's really hard. But if you're lucky you can just dig down around the jacket that you've made. It's made of burlap and plaster, and you just keep digging down around it. And eventually, when you get a comfortably safe distance from the bone, you start hammering under it or chiseling under it, whatever the case may be. It depends on what kind of bone you're digging out of the ground. And then you keep, as you're doing this process, you keep jacketing the bone. So you keep reinforcing this bone. And then when you're really comfortable, you'll flip it. So sometimes you'll probably want to do this with other people depending on how large the bone is. But uh, when you have a sufficiently large jacket around the bone, you'll have just like a series of awls under the bone. Or depending, some come out easier than others. And then you can just flip it in some safe direction and you expose an underside. Mm-hmm. which should namely be just sandstone or shale or whatever rock you're working in. And then you'll jacket that end. And then in the lab, which is a more controlled environment, they'll clean out all that excess rock that's around the bone so that you can get just a clean sample.
1: For your Camarasaurus bone that you found in Wyoming, how many people did it take to lift that up?
2: So the Camarasaurus bone, two people worked on it. My friend Justin and I had been working on it. And once we had finally jacketed it enough, which this one was actually just a beautifully, it flipped out of the ground. It wanted to come out of the ground. Um, But it was just like three of us gently putting awls under it and then we flipped it and it was just painless. But that was three of us that flipped that one. Then there are like a lot of other really big jackets, like the Stegosaurus hip bones. That thing was over a thousand pounds. So that easily took like six people to flip.
1: Wow. Did you have any training before you went on the digs for how to deal with the bones or anything like that? The first
2: thing was, like I said, it was a a class trip. So it was really that training exercise. And it's not like we just got out there and started hammering away. We were kind of, like on on day one, it was a lot of things were being explained to us. But it was just learn by doing. And the second trip was, I had some experience because I had gone to Wyoming. But the the shale was so much different than the sandstone. So I had to also, again, I had to learn, like, okay, how are we going to work with this Kind of rock, you can't just use the same techniques everywhere, I
1: guess. Sure. So, could you elaborate a little on the the different techniques you use for both sites? Yeah, in Wyoming, you just have to be
2: a lot more patient with the sandstone because it's it's so hard. You just hammer down into the sandstone. You'll have a pick and your geological hammer, and you'll have so standard anywhere you're digging, you're going to have your hammer, you're going to have your pick, you're going to have some brushes, and you're going to have some awls and For the stegosaurus bones for example those were really big bones and once we already had the jacket around them we were just like hammering down into the ground so most of our time wasn't even hammering around the bone it was just hammering down enough so that we were able to flip this massive jacket whereas in alaska the bone bed was way different because it was so dense there were so many fossils you would just like on day one it was like the site had been previously established by Anthony Fiorillo and his, his like, teammates before.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: He knew, I guess he had a good idea that there were going to be bones, but once we showed up, on day one, I started finding all kinds of like, tail bones, hadrosaurus tail bones and like, vertebrae, and that was a lot. The shale would come off in sheets, so you would hammer down in clear surface, and then you'd kind of be able to either pull a sheet out or a... A lot would come out at once. It was a lot easier to dig into that than it was into the sandstone. It was also a lot wetter.
1: Is it easy to spot a bone in the rock?
2: I guess some sites are easier than other sites to spot bones. So in Wyoming, we got a lot of charcoal, which you can tell it's charcoal because you can just rub it with your finger and it'll rub off, whereas a fossil won't rub off onto your finger. But, again, you have to be careful when you're touching these things. But if you're getting a full bone... I guess it depends what you're getting, because some really small things are just hard to identify. But in Wyoming, the bones were just like a much different color than the sandstone. So if you were like taking your time while you were going down into the sandstone, you'd be able to see like, okay, this is a dinosaur bone. But in Alaska, we actually worked at two different sites, and one quarry was like directly in the shale, and it was pretty obvious what was bone and what wasn't bone because of their different, the shale is very black, very black. And the bones didn't have that same color, but we also walked on just this large next to this river on this large bar of just rocks. And we just spent one day just like walking on these rocks and looking for bones that washed up. And that was a lot harder Mm -hmm. because you're basically searching just all over you are just rocks and just branches and all kinds of things, and you're just looking for mostly bone fragments. So that was a little harder, but, I mean, bones are porous. There are, like, specific properties that bones have that you're not going to find with just a rock or, like, a piece of wood, you know? So even that wasn't too hard to identify, I guess, if you had seen a fossil or a bone before.
1: So what are some of the bone properties that you look for? So the first thing you're looking for is the shape, so you know, like,
2: bones generally look like and they're also sometimes very like porous if you're looking down a hip bone that's like missing part of it and you're looking like not at the long part but if you're looking at it horizontally then you can see just like very fine pores other things you would look for i guess some of her are just very obviously shaped like this is not a rock <laughs> i can tell that this was from something that was living
1: how long did these digs last The first dig
2: was, I think we were out in the field for about a week. We pulled a lot of jackets from the ground, probably around a thousand pounds, because some of the bones were so massive. The second one was longer. That was, uh, we were in the field for about two weeks.
1: What was day-to-day life like while on the dig? Did you feel like you were prepared? Because I know you have to go to a remote location, and maybe it's really hot or maybe it's really cold, things like that. Um, so I think
2: I I definitely over-prepared for both trips, but the second trip when I went to Alaska I definitely took a lot more preparation because it wasn't like a class field trip. There's was a couple paleontologists, a geologist, a bone preparator, and we were just we were going out to the site, so I wanted to bring a lot of my own tools, and I had to bring my own, just my own everything, really. I wasn't really prepared for a sun that never set because uh, that was a very interesting part of that trip, that the sun was just always in the sky, but the other trip in Wyoming was a lot more just, here are all the tools, and let's just work. Like, let's learn how to, how to extract foam from
1: the ground. When were you in Alaska? It must have been sometime in the summer, right?
2: Yeah, I was in Alaska in August, so towards the end of summer.
1: Since the sun is always up, do you have to just schedule, like, okay, for these X number of hours, you're just going to have to sleep and force yourself to sleep? <laughs>
2: sound like it was directly overhead it would kind of set you know it would get a little dimmer at night but you it was you could basically wake up naturally at any time we weren't fighting for daily and and we would work for eight hours or whatever amount of work we needed to do in one day it was actually really convenient
0: because you could just you could work at whatever hours you want if you started working later in the day it's fine because the sun wasn't
2: really going to set
1: so I was just gonna ask, since you do need daylight to be able to do these digs, so I know sometimes that can be a constraint, so yeah, that must have been pretty good to have that kind of flexibility. Yeah, it was nice. In Wyoming, it was a lot more like, you want to work when the sun's out because
2: you want to see everything, but also, even though that was earlier in the summer, without the
1: sun it just gets really cold because it's, like, it's this dry heat, so it
2: doesn't linger anything.
1: Would you consider going on more digs now? Oh, definitely, definitely. Since then, I currently have a job somewhere else, but I'm just trying to read scientific papers, I'm trying to read books, but and I'll try to like find a place where I can volunteer if I have that opportunity. But definitely, I would, I would go on a dig in a heartbeat. For people who haven't been able to go do this experience yet, but maybe they want to go on a dig, how would you go about finding a place to volunteer? Do you have any advice for that? Yeah, if you're fortunate enough to be in a big city that has a museum that has fossils,
2: Try to volunteer. It's Obviously, there's never any guarantee that you're going to go on a dig, but you're not going to go on a dig by not being around. So if you're at a university and you can take any courses related to paleontology or uh, geology even, just a huge array of things, take those classes, um, volunteer at fossil labs at your schools. You can also, if you aren't fortunate enough to be by a big city or have access to fossils, you can look at... Surveys of land and see what fossils might be around you and then you can just I don't know go out and see like oh wow look this is this outcrop and Don't take anything if if you're not working with a group, but it's a good way to
1: to Even get that experience for yourself to say like okay. This is the type of rock. I'm looking at maybe there are fossils here Were you interested in dinosaurs before you took this class and went on these digs? I was interested in dinosaurs so yeah, I was interested as much as any I was any science person is interested,
2: I guess, because dinosaurs are awesome and it's a cool part in the story of life on Earth. But I wasn't psyched about them. What I've come to realize with paleontology is a lot of people have been crazy about paleontology since you know they were children. They just never stopped being crazy about dinosaurs, which is awesome because you have people that are super passionate about this subject for their whole lives. I kinda got back into it or during college. What's your favorite dinosaur? <laughs> my favorite dinosaur? Oh man, there's so many cool ones. I think, and maybe this will change soon, I think my favorite dinosaur right now is Carcharodontosaurus. It has, well, it was massive, first of all. It was this crazy theropod. It has really cool teeth, but also it just has such a cool name. Carcharodontosaurus. And then you just apply that name to this giant, and I think it's so cool.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash DinoDig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash DinoDig, D I N O D I G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022.
0: Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Carcharodontosaurus saharicus is one of the largest known predatory dinosaurs. So Carcharodon is the group that includes the great white shark and Megalodon, which, if you know about sharks, are pretty much the two most fearsome sharks that have ever lived. And the name was chosen because the teeth in the Carcharodontosaurus are similar in some ways to those that you'd see in a great white shark. So they're very sharp and they were serrated which means that they were good at slicing through flesh of their prey with something like a sharp serrated knife. Last week we discussed another Carcharodontosaur named Giganotosaurus, but Giganotosaurus was around in South America while Carcharodontosaurus was around in Africa. Carcharodontosaurus was originally described as Megalosaurus saharicus because. Megalosaurus was the catch-all taxon at the time, and I think we've discussed this with other dinosaurs in the past. So the origin of Carcharodontosaurus is a little bit odd. It appears that it was originally discovered by Ernst Stromer von Rickenbach back in 1914 when he dug up the bones, but the first published article about it was as Megalosaurus saharicus by Charles de Perret and his colleagues when they dug up some teeth in North Africa in 1927. And then Ernst Stromer von Riekenbach renamed the species Carcharodontosaurus saharicus in 1931 when he was reviewing their research, as well as publishing information about the own bones that he had dug up several years prior. So unfortunately, all of these bones were destroyed during a bombing raid in World War II. So it's not a very well-known dinosaur. It's very similar to Spinosaurus, which was discovered around the same time, also by Ernst Stromer. And those bones were also destroyed in the same bombing raid back in World War II. Because there was a fair amount of uncertainty, T. rex has been a much more popular dinosaur in modern pop culture. But since the large skull of a karcharodontosaur was discovered in 1995, it's rising in popularity again and is being seen all over pop culture. So a is a large theropod dinosaur, and they typically walked on two legs. And in case we haven't mentioned it before, theropoda is Greek for beast feet, and they're characterized by those three-toed feet that I'm sure you've seen on a T-Rex. Like Gigantosaurus, Carcharodontosaurus had 8-inch-long serrated teeth, which are terrifying. <laughs> it weighed about 13,000 pounds, and it was about 43 feet long, which was probably slightly larger than a T. rex, actually, although it's a little bit hard to tell because there's always a level of uncertainty, and we have less specimens of Carcharodontosaurus. Carcharodontosaurus had a massive tail, a very large body, and dense bones, Its arms were also very short, and it had the three-fingered, sharp-clawed hands that are similar to T. rex. However, its closest common lineage to T. rex is that they're both in the tetanuran clad, which started about a 100 million years before Carcharodontosaurus was around. Because of its similar appearance, Carcharodontosaurus is often described as the African T. rex, which has misled a lot of people to think that they're very closely related, but as I mentioned, their closest ancestor is 100 million years older. For a long time, paleontologists thought that Carcharodontosaurus had the longest skull of any theropod dinosaur, but that was based on an incomplete skull that missed a few key bones, and the shape ended up not being what they originally expected. Because of that... The total length of the head is only about 5 foot 4 inches in length, if you think that's not that long. That's actually taller than my co-host Sabrina, (laughs) so she could fit inside the space that just its head took up. It's pretty crazy. Its head was even more massive than T-Rex, but its brain case was less than half the size of T-Rex. That may make you think that that means that it was stupid compared to T-Rex, but a lot of scientists caution that that can be misleading as it may just mean that they had less keen senses instead of reduced reasoning abilities. But other scientists disagree and think it was less intelligent. I'll say more about that later. Carcarodontosaurus lived in the late Cretaceous period about 100 to 93 million years ago. And it lived in what is now modern-day northern Africa. So South America was probably just splitting away from Africa when it started to roam the Earth. So its relatives in South America are very similar in appearance, like Gigantosaurus. Even though it's a complete desert now, at the time, Africa was very warm and humid, and it had rivers and lakes all over the place. If you remember our episode about Spinosaurus aegypticus, you know that there were both aquatic and semi aquatic predators around in that space at that same time. It shared space with Aranosaurus and huge sauropods like Paralititan, and it was likely the top predator in the area, so it probably was very territorial and would have a large space to roam if it's similar to modern top predators. Its huge teeth were probably a big part of its hunting strategy. With their huge serrated teeth, they could easily open a huge wound in an animal, and it might have caused the animal to go into shock, which would make it disoriented, and it would allow Carcharodontosaurus to easily kill it, or maybe it could have just waited for it to bleed to death. It probably came into conflict at least once in a while with the largest carnivorous dinosaur known of all time, Spinosaurus, and that's because they overlapped for about 3 million years in northern Africa based on our current evidence. Some people think that they would have gotten into huge battles, but based on what we talked about in the Spinosaurus episode, since Spinosaurus was so much more into aquatic living, I'm not so sure that they would have fought very often. Even though Carcharodontosaurus had short, three-fingered arms similar to T. rex, they were actually longer than T. rexes and very strong. They may have used their arms to grab smaller prey, and that actually reminds me of another one of its relatives, Allosaurus. Carcharodontosaurus had long muscular legs, and there were fossilized trackways indicating that it might have run at about 20 miles an hour. But there is a little bit of controversy on whether or not it could have because of its huge body mass. So as we mentioned, Carcharodontosaurus was a distant relative of T. rex, and its brain appears to have evolved from a common ancestor with modern reptiles. It appears that the inner ear anatomy of Carcharodontosaurus saharicus resembled modern crocodiles, and they had a huge portion of their brain dedicated to smelling. Based on the size of the portion of their brain dedicated to smell, it may have been able to smell better than modern dogs, And it would have rivaled T-Rex. It probably also had pretty good hearing, which is surprising to me because obviously they don't have ears. I don't know what kind of a structure they had to hear, but that's pretty neat. And their sight was a little bit limited because their eyes were more on the side of their head rather than pointing forward for stereoscopic vision. But they did have large optic nerves, so it's a little bit unclear to me at least whether or not they used their eyes very much for hunting. Even though there are no soft tissues preserved during the fossilization process, there are a lot of clues that we can get by looking at the bones. And there have been a lot of endocasts made of Carcharodontosaurus's skulls. And that's how we've learned all of this about the shape of their brain and which parts of its brain were large relative to other portions. The brain looks pretty similar to modern lizards, turtles, and other reptiles, but not to modern birds. It's also the same structure that we've seen in Allosaurus when it was previously modeled. So, the more intelligent Tyrannosaurus rex evolved down a different pathway and appeared to have a better ability to reason, which would have made it a more impressive predator and May have possibly led to how that lineage outperformed the Carcharodontosaurus and its relatives. So, Carcharodontosaurus is really starting to get popular in modern culture, and there are a few places that you can see it. It's featured in Monsters Resurrected, and you can also get it in Jurassic Park Builder, which is a tablet game. You can see it in the end of series three of the show Primeval. Which, according to IMDb, is about a team of British people tracking down and capturing all sorts of dangerous prehistoric creatures. Sounds like an interesting show. I'm going to have to check it out. It's also in the show Dinosaur Planet, but for some reason they characterize their huge South American predator as Carcharodontosaurus when they really should have called it Gigantosaurus because we all know that they weren't in South America they were in Africa. And finally you can see it in Lost World from Planet Dinosaur where it again fights a Spinosaurus.
1: So Ernst Stromer described Carcharodontosaurus and his full name is Ernst Freyer Stromer von Rickenbach. Freyer is a German title similar to Baron. Stromer described a number of dinosaurs from Egypt, and in November of 1910, he met with John Ball, who was the founder of the Desert Survey Department of the Geological Survey of Egypt, and they had published the first topographic map of Egypt, and was finishing a geological map to be published in 1911, and these maps were very invaluable to Stromer, and it helped him with his upcoming expedition he had planned. Stromer had first visited Egypt in 1901 and loved the area, so he decided to return to look for some early mammal fossils. However, in the first stage of his expedition, unfortunately, he was just very frustrated and him and his team didn't really find much. But in the second stage of his expedition, he and his team found three different species of carnivorous dinosaurs which also included Bahariasaurus and Spinosaurus. However, because of World War I, he had to wait for a number of years for the fossils from Egypt to be shipped to him in Germany. He finally got them in 1922, but they had been packed poorly and were damaged pretty badly, so it took him a while to put them all back together. So he didn't publish any formal descriptions of these fossils until the 1930s. Uh, stromer himself led an interesting and a little bit tragic life he defied the nazi party and he paid for that he was from an old aristocratic german family so he was not personally harmed but all three of his sons were sent to fight in the war two died in combat and one was captured and imprisoned in the soviet union for a few years During World War II, the fossils that Stromer had found in Egypt remained in a Munich Museum. Despite Stromer requesting to move the fossils to a safer place, there were a lot of curators of fine art and science museums in Germany removing their works and specimens to caves and salt mines to better protect them. But unfortunately, Stromer's fossil discoveries were not a part of that, and in April 1944, a British Royal Air Force bombed the museum and destroyed all of his fossils. His fossils weren't the only ones that were destroyed in the war. Between 1940 and 1944, there were 17 dinosaur fossils, including some type specimens, that were destroyed. However, years later, some of the specimens that Stromer described have been found again. They're not the same specimens, but other examples. For example, Spinosaurus, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Scientists described Spinosaurus in more detail in 2014, and we now know, for example, it's a semi-aquatic dinosaur, and it was a very large carnivore. And in 1995, Paul Sereno and his team found Carcharodontosaurs again, not far from the Algerian border. They found a skull that matched the description that Stromer had written. So even though some of the fossils were destroyed in World War II, at least scientists found more evidence and have been able to study this dinosaur more thoroughly.
0: And our fun fact of the day is that we all know about Pangea, which was the unified supercontinent back during the time of the dinosaurs, but before that there were an estimated six other supercontinents that existed. Pangea is really just the most recent one.
1: And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time!